Well, let's turn to Galatians and let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the peace that we have to come now to uh, consider your word together. We pray that you would speak to us and we confess our weakness, we confess our need and we thank you for the help of the Holy Spirit. We rely on you tonight and we pray that you would show us more of the Lord Jesus Christ for we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, Well, modern life is busy. Um, Lots of us feel uh, what we might call time poor. And uh, companies often try to grab our attention with very memorable slogans. Um, Tesco, every little helps. Sky, believe in better. Uh, One of the best is, don't be confused, be confused.com, okay? Um, And that slogan is very good, isn't it? Because it taps into the fact that uh, lots of us are very confused about uh, things like insurance, and the, uh, the thought of insurance kind of brings us out in a slightly cold sweat, and so if there is a website that can help us, I'm sure there are other websites available, and um, you don't have to go for that one, but um, then that can be really great. Um, but insurance is not the only thing that you and I get uh, confused about, is it? Uh, lots of things in scripture are confusing, and there are, uh, one of the things that I think can be really confusing for us as Christians is thinking about God's law. God's law. Some of you were here um, at the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and at the prayer meeting we looked at Psalm 19. And in Psalm 19, um, David, in the second half, he really revels in God's law. He talks about how wonderful it is, and how precious it is, how sweet it is. How can David speak like that? When other passages in the Bible, in the New Testament, um, passages like the one we've, we're looking at this evening, seem to be more negative about God's law. Um, is David some kind of legalist? These are the kind of issues that I want us to, to think about tonight as we look at this passage in, in Galatians. What I want us to try and do is to get the law in order. Get the law in order. And I want us to do that by considering three uh, questions, reflecting on three questions. And the first is this, where does it fit? When we're thinking about the law, where does it fit? This is really verses 15 to 18. Where does it fit? And it's often said in comedy that uh, timing is everything. Uh, You need to um, pick your moment to deliver uh, the punchline. And in a sense, the same is true with God's law. And it's really important to, to see where it fits in the plan of God. And in verses 15 to 18, Paul helps us to see this. And he does it by drawing a comparison. He draws a comparison 
with what he calls a man-made covenant. And today we'd um, use terminology like um, a will or something like that. Um, Now, wills are not something that we tend to like to talk about, are they? But they're very important. Um, Once they've been written, once a person has died, they can't be changed. And that is, of course, why they can be very controversial. Um, How many families after a funeral have um, discovered that um, great Auntie Geraldine um, has decided not to pass on the the, the family heirloom that's been passed down from generation to generation um, to someone in the family, but it's going to someone that none of them have heard of. And then there's just sort of uproar because uh, the matter is fixed. Well, Paul says God's covenant is like that. And Paul says that the law which came 430 years after, he's speaking there about um, Israel's time in slavery in Egypt, the law doesn't annul, doesn't make void what God had said in the past. And so if I can put it like this, get mathematical, the addition of the law after God's promise, doesn't take away from God's promise. Now, this is not what the the false teachers uh, thought uh, in Galatia. They they put their confidence in law-keeping. They thought that law-keeping would top up their faith or, or enhance their faith. Um, This was the kind of um, thinking that Peter had slipped back into in chapter 2, but it was wrong. And I think we see something of this. If you turn back to Exodus chapter 20, or if you don't have a Bible, just listen. Exodus chapter 20, and this is really important for us to get uh, straight in our minds. Exodus chapter 20, listen to the way... Uh, the chapter begins. Before God lays out the Ten Commandments, what does he say in verse 2? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the Ten Commandments follow from that. In other words, the law was given to those who were already God's people. They had already been delivered by him. Law-keeping was never meant to be a means to the end of inclusion. Never meant to be a way of, of achieving or acquiring a righteousness of our own. No, as Paul puts it back in Galatians chapter 3... Verse 18, the inheritance, it always came by promise. Now in verse 16, Paul lingers on the promises. And can you see the surprising thing that he says? And it is um, about the recipient of the promises. And Paul says that... um, They were given to Abraham and his offspring, but then he identifies that offspring. Can you see that? He says that it was Christ. And what does he mean by that? In what sense is Christ the the recipient of these promises? It seems quite, quite strange, doesn't it? 
Well, what we need to uh, realize is that when Paul uses the word offspring, he is using a collective noun. Now, if uh, the mere mention of grammatical terms like that sends you into a bit of a, a cold sweat, gives you terrifying flashbacks to English at school, uh, just try to stick with me. And the word offspring it is used in verse 18, and it is also used in verse 29. And in the latter, it clearly refers to a group of people. And we'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. But in verse 18, he is using it to refer to one person. What is going on here? How can a promise for many be for one and vice versa? How can we be offspring and heirs of the promise if its ultimate focus if its ultimate recipient is Christ. I think the best way to understand this is to think of the promise made to Christ here as being made to all who are in him. In him. And this is the doctrine of union with Christ that we've mentioned um, a few times recently. And union with Christ, it describes what happens when we become Christians? When we place our trust in Christ, we are united to him. We are folded into him. All that was ours is his. And all that is his is now ours. Our lives are hidden with him. His death was our death. And his resurrection has guaranteed Hours. And there is massive assurance here. Because as Christians, we don't just believe in him. We are, if you like, participants in him. We are bound to him. And the New Testament uses different pictures to illustrate this. He is the head and we are the body. He is the vine we are the branches. He is the cornerstone of the temple we have been included in. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Nothing can separate God's people from Christ. Now we're jumping ahead um, a little bit. And this is a tricky passage. We need God's help as we look at it. But verse 19, I think, backs up these ideas. Paul says the law was added... Remember that we're thinking about the timing here. The law was added until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And Christ is that offspring. And all who trust in him are in him. Something for us to reflect on. Maybe you're wondering, um, if all that is true, why did God bother to give the law? Well, isn't this sermon about the law? If you're thinking like that, then you're right to do so. And you have anticipated Paul's question in verse 19. Why then the law? As we think about this, we're not just looking at uh, the first question, where does the law fit in? We also need to think about the second one, what does it do? What does the law do? And here we're looking at verses 19 to 24. 
What does the law do? As we reflect on these verses, it's very important to realize that what Paul says here about the law is not the whole of scriptural teaching on the law. What we need to remember when thinking about the law is the number three. There is um, what we would call a threefold distinction to the law, and there is a threefold use of the law. So in the Old Testament, there are civil laws, there are ceremonial laws, and there is the moral law. And you and I, as Christians, we are not under the first of those things, or the second. We're not under the first, as we're no longer living in ancient Israel. And the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, that has been brought to an end by Christ's death once and for all. And we can still learn from these laws, um, principally I think about God's character, but God's moral law remains in place. God's moral law has not been abolished. And though we often fail as Christians, the, the Ten Commandments, they remain as a pattern of life for believers. The law shows us how God wants us to live as his children. Um, The law shows us the family traits of Christians. It shows us what the Holy Spirit works in us as we mature as Christians. And this is one of the reasons why David said he could love the law so much. And just as we need to be clear about the law's categories, we also need to be clear about the, the law's role. The law does three things. The law restrains sin. So as we look at God's commands, um, sometimes our consciences are, are pricked and we don't do things that are wrong. Um, the law, secondly, it teaches us to love what God loves. And we've mentioned this already. Paul will talk about this kind of new life in chapters 5 and 6. But there is another use of the law. We're getting to the point, finally... And it is the one that Paul is focusing on here. The law exposes our sin. And in verse 19, what Paul does is he takes us back to Mount Sinai. And this is the event he's remembering there. He says that when he says that the law, when it was put in place, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And he's thinking there about Moses, uh, God um, giving the law to him, it then being passed on to God's people. This was different, of course, to the way God spoke to Abraham directly. But he says that the law was added, verse 19, because of transgressions. Transgressions. Now, um, Andy mentioned uh, grannies this morning. And uh, I can remember um, when I was a little boy going to see my granny and grandpa in Glasgow and there was a sign outside their house that said, no ball games allowed. Um, Kids, what do you think I wanted to do when I saw that sign? Um, I wanted to play football. Even though I didn't even have a football with me, somebody give me a football, let me play football. And everything in me wanted to break the rule. 
And God's law is a bit like that. God's law exposes our sin. As Paul says um, elsewhere in Romans chapter 3, it was through the law, as he looked at it, that he became conscious of sin. And this is one of the reasons that the law is not contra- contrary to the promises of God. As we reflect on it, as we consider God's standards, well, we begin to see our sin. And it's similar to what Andy was describing um, this morning. It leads us to repentance. We may have thought that we were pretty decent people. But if we look long and hard at God's law, well, we see our need. And it's often said that the law is like um, an x-ray. So the law can show us what is wrong with us, but the law can't fix us. And that is why any attempt to use it for that purpose, to achieve or earn or create um, a right standing before God is flawed. Any attempt to justify ourselves in the eyes of others, patterns of behavior or extra rules will never succeed. And maybe tonight at this point, it's, it's helpful to pause, to ask questions like this. What do you and I often assume keeps us right with God? Um, is it our quiet time? Um, is it the fact that we have um, managed to resist a particular sin for a few weeks? Um, even if we believe that we get into God's family by faith, what are we tempted to think keeps us in God's family? What do we subtly communicate to other people about these things? Let me say this really, really clearly. Any teaching that tries to answer these questions by focusing on our religious activity or looking right before other people is at odds with the God revealed in Scripture. And it is a denial of the cross However moral, however good it might appear. And last week I quoted from um, Grant McCaskill, who some of you know, and he points out that there is, there is a world of difference between performing and hearing with faith. Performing and hearing with faith. One of those things puts me in the spotlight One of those things puts me on the stage, but the other makes me the the recipient, the beneficiary of the righteousness of someone else. And only one of those things is Christian. And this is what Paul is kind of getting at in verse 21. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. But that was not God's plan. And instead, Paul, he uses a powerful illustration. He says that scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And he he repeats this prison language in verse 23. What he's picturing here is human beings held captive under the law 
until the coming faith would be revealed. This is humanity apart from Christ, condemned, in need, in chains, unable, completely unable to set ourselves free, needing someone to rescue us from outside of ourselves. In verse 24, Paul, he switches to a different metaphor. He goes from the prison cell to the walk to school, which um, to some of us might not seem like a change at all. Um, And in verse 24, he says that the law was a guardian. And you see that? The law was a guardian until Christ came. Um, Some versions of the Bible translate that word guardian as um, tutor or or schoolmaster. Um, But I think the ESV is more accurate here. The guardian was like a household slave. Um, The guardian was more like what we would probably call today a childminder than a teacher. They would take the child to and from school. They would make sure they had the equivalent of a rucksack, a water bottle, a pencil case, all the other things, the amazing number of things that kids need for school today. And they would administer discipline. And Paul is saying that the law was like that. It was preparing the way for God's people. It, was, it said to God's people, do this. And then there was punishment when they failed to do it. it there was discipline. It was preparing the way. It was laying the groundwork for when Christ would come. It was showing people over and over their helplessness. It was exposing sin. But now that Christ has come, Paul says we are no longer under a guardian in the same way. And so the law is not like a a training manual that we can use to make ourselves right with God. And using it like that, it's a bit like um, a grown man still needing a childminder to get to work. How we relate to it is to be different. And how we relate to one another is to be different too. And this takes me to the final question that I I want us to consider uh, tonight. How do we live in response? How do we live in response? And we've thought about where the law fits. We've thought about what the law does. How do we live in response to these things? And Paul gives us the answer in verses 26 to 29. And in the, this section, Paul is emphasizing that the fundamental fact of Christian unity. He is reminding us that the union of Christ Union with Christ that we've seen already. It means that we are united to him and we are united to one another. In Christ Jesus, he says, we are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. And the words in and all in that phrase, really matter. Having God as Father, Paul says, is not the privilege of a select few in the body of Christ who look good enough, and who work hard enough, or who just seem like the kind of people that God would want in his family. No, all who are in Christ are sons of God through faith. 
And that means that we have a status tonight that is not achieved or earned, but is received. It is given to us by him. And now maybe you have a question about the word um, son. Um, Is Paul being um, sexist here? It's very important for me to say no. Um, Instead, what he's doing, he's picking up the fact that in the culture of um, his day, it was the son, um, the eldest son, who was the legal heir. And what he's doing is also underlying that we are adopted in Christ, the son. As someone has put it, we are sons in the son. And what Paul wants us to know is that whether we are male or female, we are God's children with all the privileges. That means God is our father and we are his sons. We are part of his family. And that means we have an inheritance. That means we have a security, an identity that can never be erased. And Paul really just hammers this home by speaking about baptism. He says that as believers we have been baptized into a person. Do you notice that? Into a person, into Christ. I think this is maybe a little bit different to the way we sometimes think about baptism. But what Paul is doing is showing it again that you and I are inextricably bound to Christ. We are hidden in him. We are so close to Christ as Christians that Paul says we have put on Christ. And that union that you and I have with him, it means that we are united to one another. Our fellow Christians are also those who have been joined to him. And that is what he means when he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And it's often pointed out that Paul's words here, they, they challenge um, ancient prayers of Jews and Greeks who'd give thanks that they hadn't been born foreigners or slaves or women. Um, and in picking up such language, Paul is making clear that there is absolutely no room for building walls with, in the church based on ethnicity or sex or snobbery. And he's also saying that the unity that we have as God's people, it rests on the fact that we are in him. It is not because we look or sound or smell the same. And we can often find each other uh, difficult, can't we? We can often be difficult. Paul is saying our unity is not the result of just trying to be nicer to one another. It is not the result of just rallying around certain views. Paul says, if we are in Christ, then we are one. We are one. And we are called to live in light of that reality. Paul is not saying that we lose any sense of individuality when we become Christians, that we need to become kind of Christian chameleons. 
Paul is not saying that our gender or our background or the work that we might do is somehow unimportant or insignificant because we become Christians. He is not saying there are no differences between men or women. He is not saying that we shouldn't be happy to be Scottish or English or French or we even have some Greeks here tonight, don't we? No, he is stressing the miracle that God has done. God has made us one. That is a fact. Now, maybe you can see how this speaks to um, our culture today with all its division. But how does all of this connect to the law? How does all of this connect to legalism? Well, isn't it the case that legalism will say the only true believers are those who look and think exactly like me? But that is sub-Christian. That is worldly thinking. Because it takes all the focus away from Christ, the one who has made us one, And it places it on us. And what it does is it says to other believers, what matters most is not the union that you and I have with Christ or what we might share in him. What you need to do is conform to my likeness. What you need to do is jump through my hoops what you need to do is join my tribe. But to come back to the slogans that we thought about at the beginning of this sermon and borrow from Apple, we need to think different. We need to remember tonight that we are not made right with God by keeping his law We need to remember tonight that we are Christ's and we need to remember that this is true of all who place their trust in him. Well, let's pray together and thank God for all of this. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts And you know that we naturally think that we are made right with you by what we do. We thank you that you have given us the law. We thank you that it exposes us, that it shows us our need for Christ. And we thank you that you sent him. And we thank you for all that he has done for us. We thank you that he has made us one. Help us rejoice in all that he has done for us and help us value what he has created. For we ask it all in his name and for his sake tonight. Amen.